This is Movie Thoughts. My name is John Hastings. This is my podcast where I ramble on about some random topic about movies. This is episode nine. For this episode, I'm doing kind of, this is kind of a follow-up to my episode on overrated and underrated, or specifically we're going to talk a little bit more about underrated stuff. Um, but before that, I, I want to kind of say, um, you know, I like lists. You know, I like best lists. I like top tens. I like um, lists of great performances. Um, I like lists of, of, you know, your favorite horror movies. I like all those type of lists. And I say that I like lists because, you know, they'll, especially I'll, I'll see, um, I, I mean, I think people like lists in general, but then there's also kind of a, a pushback against lists with critics you know sometimes professional critics will say like oh i don't want to just put it into a list that's you know not really what art appreciation is about that turns it into too much of like uh, kind of like sports or this kind of objective ranking and you're you're getting away from what you know um the 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 the, you know, the heart of things um so i think you know i think kind of you have a they have a point you know lists um lists have their downside but for me, what I think about is, you know, lists were very important to me when I was first getting into movies. I threw them, they pointed me to movies I wouldn't have otherwise heard of. Um, you know, uh, I, I used to read, you know, in the, I used to read Entertainment Weekly, uh, you know, many years ago. So as a, as a high school, a junior high and high school kid, I'd read Entertainment Weekly. They tended to have these great lists, you know, it's kind of the you know, the 100 best movies, but also the best cult movies, the best horror movies. Um, you know, their cult movie list turned me on to a movie like The Hidden, which is a, a, became a, a favorite. I um, Other lists that were important to me in high school, a, a film critic visited our English class and gave this list of his favorite movies of the, of the 70s and, and the 80s, which turned me on to California Split, which I hadn't heard of before, which is, you know, one of my favorite movies of all time now. Um, the Stuntman, which I hadn't really heard of uh, before, which again is another big movie for me. So uh, th- those were great. And the, the kind of big consensus lists, you know, the list that, that said, hey, these are the, you know, these are the really important movies that we kind of all agree on, you know, they, you can look at them, but once you've seen a ton of movies, you can say that those are pretty boring, you know, who cares, who needs to know about, um, you know, Eight and a Half and The Seventh uh, Seal and um, Citizen Kane, you know, of course, those are good. But, you know, as a you know, when I was first becoming a film film buff, oh, those those were a great way to show, you know, you can't go wrong seeing these movies. These are movies you probably should see. Um, and, uh, you know, even f- from the perspective of a, a, a jaded film buff, you can say, like, actually, if you just want to watch great movies, going back to, like, a one of the sight and sound polls from the from the 50s or 60s and seeing what people thought then were the best movies of all time, that's actually a really great place to start if you want to watch great movie after great movie, go to the sight and sound poll. Um, and, you know, you can look at newer consensus lists, um, or you can look at any consensus list, but I, I find it useful sometimes to look to the newer consensus lists that gives a good sense of what kind of current values are important. And you can kind of use them a little bit more from a little bit more academically, maybe not necessarily to point you to movies that um, you should see, but to kind of get a sense of what do critics now think are important to see in movies. Um, you know, so the 
kind of going back, my, my favorite lists are definitely ones with their own kind of editorial voice, um, their own authorial voice. I, I really love the, the Coyote Cinema top 10 lists because those tend to be not just um, lists, but they're almost arguments for a certain way of looking at film and for a certain set of values around film. And one thing I always think about lists is, you know, I when I make my lists or when I look at someone else's list, I try not to look at it as being the end of a conversation, but more as a way to start a conversation. And I think if people kind of think about lists in that way, then those some of those like n- negative thoughts people have about lists might go away. You can think of it as a list, a good list is one that starts a good conversation. Um, it's not about kind of setting into stone some objective truth. Okay. So I have a bunch of lists up on my Letterboxd page. So my account there is Forager23 um, at Letterboxd. So this episode is kind of inspired by all, all the lists I have there, which you can look at. But here, this is just a, you know, kind of a top 10 list of, these are all recent movies that I think are great, but they are I don't think they would show up on anyone else's necessarily any consensus list for sure. I don't know they'd show up on too many other people's kind of best lists. Um, These aren't obscure movies, really. Um, Most of them have kind of big stars or were made by big time directors. So this isn't kind of this. This is this is these are all sort of movies or people you've heard about. Um, But I think they're easily among the best of the last decade. And, uh, you know, the, the critical establishment doesn't agree with me. So I think because of that or because of uh, their, their reputation being kind of as, as kind of as being kind of beta, um, they might have flown under the radar of more casual film fans. So um, we'll start with uh, number one, the, you know, I, this is kind of in, I guess this is sort of in order, but, you know, um, some type of order. We'll conf- we don't know exactly you know, we can sort that out after, but in some type of order, number one is the movie Black Hat, which is a Michael Mann thriller about um, kind of cybersecurity and hackers and kind of, uh, um, you know, tough guys uh, chasing down criminals. It's kind of, it's still like a, it's like a cyber cops versus criminals movies. Um, you know, uh, you know, Michael Mann is a, you know, as a director who's who, who the the his his movies really are live in the way he's telling the story. There's a certain standardness to a lot of the plot and the kind of the, a lot of the thriller set up in his movie, but the his he has this lyrical approach um, that kind of kind of forces us to kind of watch it differently and. I think it's one of those movies where if you're not watching with your eyes, if you're not paying attention to how it works and you're just listening to the dialogue, you kind of probably won't get it. So, you know, I'm tempted to say kind of the visuals are what drives the movie, but it, it's it's kind of reductive to to kind of talk about what he does with images to just call it like the visuals that doesn't do it justice. Um, he has these really dynamic, unbalanced compositions. They're always on the verge of shifting between two points. Um, there's a... Uh, an effective movies where what what the what's in the background might turn out to be more important than what's in the foreground, and then we're we're kind of our attention's constantly shifting back and forth. Um, 
thematically that in in the course of this movie about kind of cybersecurity, it reminds us the way that things in in this digital world are connected um, and also kind of the limits to connections between actual individuals. And there's a kind of um, a progression there where we – you know, the story opens with all these law enforcement agencies from two nations, you know, trying to find this international terrorist group and using all this technology to do it. And ultimately, we, you know, man strips away from things until it ends with, you know, two guys getting into a knife fight for, for personal reasons. Um, you know, this is a, a movie where the meaning and its heart is in the way it uses sound and images. Um, the, the screenplay and performances are aren't foregrounded by the filmmaking. So the, the filmmaking isn't, isn't there to kind of put over a story, but rather just kind of get sucked up into the filmmaking. And you've got to kind of look and feel your way through the movie. You you can't just pay attention to what they're saying and what kind of faces they're making. You have to, um, you have to uh, look at the taking the whole picture kind of at once um the images how the how this how the scenes are shot how the scenes are edited um the the movement of the actors um and 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 the uh, the the way this the whole sound design and and musical score works with it too so that's the black hat i highly recommend it um, to any fan of the cinema um so next movie i'd like to talk about number two is a uh maybe one of the smaller movies on this list. It's called Heaven Knows What. It's by uh, directed, written and directed by the Safdie brothers who made the movie Good Time, which I also think is terrific. So it's a, it's a very kind of, I would say it's a pretty grim movie. It's a look at um, heroin addicts who, you know, especially this, this young woman who's a heroin addict and it follows her as she tries to hustle her way between fixes. Um, I think most people who have seen it have really, I don't know if like is the right word, but I think most people who have seen it find it a very powerful experience. But again, it's a movie that um, hasn't, uh, I think, you know, maybe for because of its subject matter, hasn't found a great, a giant audience. Um, it is pretty bleak, but I th- it's definitely a, of the past couple of years, one of those movies that I think is um, is deserving of a, a, of a of wider um wider uh a wider audience um and is a, definitely a, a power powerful movie um so number three the movie is the nice guys which is uh not a small movie it's a big movie it stars big movie stars ryan gosling and russell crowe it's written and directed by shane black who is um you know was the writer of lethal weapon and um more recently was the writer and director of iron man 3 um, it is, uh, a very, um, you know, black style is to mix kind of comedy and sentimentality and melodrama and kind of to go back and forth between them, um, ping-ponging back between them without, um, worrying about that mishmash in tone. Um, you know, he is, a has this kind of, um, almost comic disregard for human life um that's uh in some scenes but then also you have uh, completely unironically having a really precocious um too cute smarter than her years teenage girl in the middle of a movie kind of giving kind of wise advice to her her dad uh 
you know, it, the the kind of milieu or the, the, the idiom of it is this kind of laid back 70s buddy cop movie and private eye movies. Um, but the style, a lot of the style is more late 80s action movie um, uh, in, in, in the way it plays out. Um, you know, I think it's, like I say, I think it's one of the best movies of the last couple of years, but there's a, there's an almost tastelessness to the way he, Shane Black is willing to mix and match these tones that don't go together. So that might be off-putting for some people, but I think if you can, um, I, I like that piece of it. So if you can, if you can flow with the tone shifts, you know, you'll, you've got a, a great comedy, a great action movie and with a ton of great, um, a ton of great these great kind of slapstick action sequences and the, the then the cast is terrific uh gosling and, and russell crowe give two really great performances and they both have really um terrific characters that black has written for them so number four number four so you know the coen brothers are my among my favorite directors probably of, of all time and um you know, most of their movies of the last couple of years have been widely praised and, you know, won awards. The The kind of outlier for that is the movie Hail Caesar, um, which I, I, you know, didn't seem, you know, it's the one that people seem to have more problems with critics and audiences alike. Um, I absolutely loved it. You know, having said that, it'd be hard for me to imagine a movie that is more precisely designed to appeal to me, um, you know, it's a really kind of, I think, just as in, 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 intricate, intricately designed as any of their other movies. Um, I think it has a lot of subversive ideas in it, um, and I think it was just pretty, pretty enjoyable just from from the beginning to end. You know, the the Coen Brothers have a reputation of being these kind of put on artists, these kind of smart Alex. Um, you know, when they part, partly just because they don't want to, they don't really open up about their creative process to journalists. Um, I, I think, uh, you know, that's a bit of a misperception to see them as completely as put on artists. You know, they've, they have this kind of shtick where they don't play along with a lot of what passes for movie journalism. Um, even though that has actually that not playing along really promotes their own brand. Um, but I think to a certain extent, they've kind of developed this rep. They've, they've cultivated rather a reputation as being put on artists who, who don't give straight answers as a cover partly because it lets them get away with making movies as thematically daring as Hail Caesar on the one hand, um, as, as subversive as Hail Caesar and as daringly sincere as True Grit. So they can kind of, um, you know, because they stay quiet about the meaning of their movies, um, some critics will follow that lead and they'll read these obscurity into these movies that actually have some really profound, clear sanity to them. Um, you know, I think that uh, Hail Caesar kind of um, f- part part of the reasons it had troubles. It, it, it is kind of geared, I think, towards egghead movie buffs. Um, so it's kind of understandable that it wasn't a big crowd pleaser. Um, you know, having said that, um, I I think that um, something else happened with it, which is that. Nowadays, I think audiences, you know, kind of smart audiences who, who want to see all the movies that get nominated for Academy Awards do have a harder time with serious movies. And I don't mean, you know, I think, I mean, Hail Caesar is very funny, but I think it's on, a, I think it's a, a serious movie nonetheless. Serious movies that don't signal they're serious movies. Um, so 
you know, Hail Caesar, I don't think is a lightweight movie. It's, you know, it's, like I said, intricately designed. It deals with all sorts of philosophical issues, historical issues, and cultural issues. But because it's presented in the form of a car- cartoony farce, and George Clooney's in the middle of it, giving this big bug-eyed cartoony performance right in the right in the middle, um, you know, it throws audiences off. So you, it seems to be that people want to split things into two easy categories. You've got serious movies about serious topics that are presented in a serious style, and you've got to take them seriously. Or you can have lightweight movies about frivolous topics, and those are for escapism, and we're not really supposed to think about that and, or even really talk about them much at all. Um, I think maybe that's the way it's always been. And with movies, you know, that's always been this way. Movies with this kind of tonal complexity have been a harder sell. I think, though, it's kind of getting worse. Um, I think there's this very smart portion of the audience who want to see kind of good movies and worthwhile movies. But I I feel, and, and maybe people can have a different take on this or prove me wrong, but they're less open to this type of oddball movie, less open to the idea that, you know, the really good movies don't necessarily have to be the ones that are dealing with officially sanctioned serious topics in this officially sanctioned serious style. Um, that kind of gets me to the next movie I want to talk about. So I think we're up to number five. So so um, a couple of, 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 of years ago, um, I was having a conversation with a relative and he's a smart guy, gets most of his movie watching tips from listening to like NPR um, tries to keep up with the Oscar-nominated movies, and he asked me. Um, so I guess this was uh, this was like four or five years ago now. He asked me what the my favorite movie of the prior year had been, and I said, kind of without um, without missing a beat, I said Dumb and Dumber Two. And they said, No, 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 no. Um, I went, What was your favorite good movie? So they hadn't actually seen Dumb and Dumber Two, so they weren't kind of saying they thought that it was a bad movie. They were just kind of expressing an underlying kind of unexamined assumption that Dumb and Dumber 2 didn't belong to the class of movies that you're supposed to take seriously. So that's not where you're supposed to select the good, the really good ones from. But anyways, get me, you know, number five. So Dumb and Dumber 2, you know, uh, another movie that I think is uh, really terrific. Um, You know, I also really liked Green Book, which was the, you know, also was directed by Peter Farrelly. Um, It was sad to me a little bit that it was kind of part of its narrative of its production and, and, and creation was, you know, kind of sold as Peter Farrelly maturing out of making um, dumb comedies. And I thought that was particularly sad because it followed Dumb and Dumber 2, which I think is his and his brother's greatest work as filmmakers. Um, you know, prior to Dumb and Dumber 2, the Farrelly brothers seemed to have spent most of the last you know, t- 10 years before making that movie in, in what I would consider like the wilderness. You know, they had this great, um, 10 years before that, they made the Stuck on You, which is a, just a great, great movie, very another underrated movie that did not hit with audiences or critics. And it seemed like the zeitgeist actually had passed by their kind of comedy. Um, and they spent the next couple of movies, which was a, a remake of Fever Pitch, a remake of The Heartbreak Kid, and then their, you know, a movie Hall Pass, trying to show that they could do other people's kind of comedy too. So they were trying to make these kind of Judd Apatow movies or this kind of Wedding Crashers, Hangover type comedies, this bro comedies. Um, and I think they did a great, I think I like all those movies, Fever Pitch, Heartbreak Kid, and Hall Pass. I think they all have something going for them. But um, it did not, they didn't really necessarily feel like the Fairleys playing to their own strengths. Then with the their movie of Three Stooges, um, I thought it, 
that did give them a chance to get back to what they do best. But even there, I, I mean, I like that movie a lot, but they seemed constrained, I think, by their self-imposed commitment to the Stooge legacy. Um, so Dumb and Dumber 2, for me, shows them back in their best form. And I think it might be, like I say, I think it might be their best movie. Um, I think it's as funny as Kingpin. Um, it's as precise in the dumbness of its gags as, you know, the standard Adam Sandler comedies are sloppy in theirs. Um, I remember watching Dumb and Dumber 2 as in an empty theater, but I was laughing from start to finish. And it's, I think to a certain extent, a movie has to be really funny if you're alone in a, a theater just laughing out loud. And it isn't just that the gags are funny, but they're surprising and surprisingly well made, you know, surprisingly well executed. It's one of the few comedies um, I've seen in the last 10 years where the gags are built around where the camera is, you know, where the, if you put the camera someplace else, the gags don't work. Um, and that's hard to, there's not too many other movies that are built that way anymore. Um, there's a sequence in it where they lose their hearing. There's a similar gag in The Three Stooges. It's kind of an elaboration on that gag. And that, that sequence where they lose their hearing is as a brilliant piece of filmmaking as I've seen in any movie over the last 10 years. It's a, a real demonstration of how sound and picture come together to express something that neither could on their own. Next up, we have, um, I don't have as much, I think that was the most I had to say about any movie. It's Dumb and Dumber 2. So it's, it's good to know. Um, so next up, I have a, another uh, um, a movie, um, another thriller. It's called Life Without Principle. Um, it's directed by Johnny Toe. So it's a, you know, there's a fairly common approach in art house festival filmmaking is you take kind of a thriller concept, but then you, you strip it of any element that might actually make an audience feel thrills. So there's a lot of, you'll see these kind of thrillers from art houses or festivals that aren't really thrilling. Um, and Johnny Toe has the opposite approach. He starts with kind of an art movie setup, which is a, a network narrative about the financial crisis. You know, it's going to see how the financial, the global financial crisis affects all these different characters. But then um, he lightly plays up um, different thriller aspects of the story. Um, so we get kind of a value added and it kind of makes everything, um, it, you know, it, it, it makes everything pretty, it makes everything engaging, keeps you involved. Um, the the approach isn't the only thing with Johnny Toe because the other thing with him is he he remains, you know, one of the great practitioners of mise-en-scene working in movies today. So the movie's also very inventive on a shot-by-shot basis um, in terms of exploring the, the character's psychology and getting those themes across. So life without principle. Um, next, I wanted to talk about, I think this is number seven, um, the Clint Eastwood movie Hereafter, or Clint Eastwood directed it. It stars Matt Damon. Um, it's the movie where uh, Matt Damon is this uh, medium or psychic, um, and it's about kind of wrestling with mortality, wrestling with, with spirituality. Um, it opens with one of the strongest pieces of filmmakings in, that Clint Eastwood has ever done. It's this kind of tsunami flood sequence, and it has this really intense, engaging um it's 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 a very intense movie, but engaging throughout as it deals with these kind of uh, heavy um, thematic issues of mortality and faith. I think it's pretty terrific. Number eight is uh, "You Will Meet a Tall Dark Dark Stranger." This is a Woody Allen movie from a couple years ago. I don't think anyone but me like this one. Um, I think it's terrific. But it's a, another network narrative. You got these different characters. You know, to 
to talk about why it's great, you sort of have to move up to almost spoiling it, but um, you kind of have to a little. You know, it has this light comic tone, and there's all this kind of, it moves a little bit to light cynicism. But it's a kind of light comedy throughout. You can think, is this going to be like a romantic comedy or, or something like that? But as it moves on, you realize that these interconnected stories are all kind of leading up to a point where the main character in each of the storylines starts thinking that, you know what, maybe killing someone might be a good solution to my problems. Um, and uh, there's, I can't really think of another movie like it. You know, um, there's similarities to other Woody Allen movies. I, I kind of think of it as, you know, him rewriting crimes and misdemeanors to, to turn into like a comic novella. Um, I think it's just terrific and, and quite unique. Uh, number nine um, is Alps um, by Yorgos Lanthimos. So he's a, a guy who directed the movies The Favorite and The Lobster, and his first movie was Dogtooth. This is his second movie. Um, everyone loved Dogtooth, and I think people really liked The Lobster, and The Favorite was a big Academy Award nominee. This is my favorite of his movies, Alps. Um, it seems to have been overlooked. Uh, it's it's kind of hard to explain the appeal by talking just about the premise. It's kind of an odd premise. Um, and the way I think Lanthimos works is he takes aspects of social and cultural life, um, and he kind of makes it weird in some way. He, he adds some kind of made-up alien institution and, and makes things weird. So in The Lobster, the idea of like courtship and romance is turned into this kind of science fiction setup. And in Alps, what happens is this idea that... Um, it kind of makes up this idea that if you're grieving for a loved one, you can hire this performance group to stand in for the loved one. You can kind of bring them back by having an actor play, you know, the loved one who you've lost. Um, and the, the way this works is it makes us kind of aware of all these unspoken rules and assumptions around, in, in the case of Alps, grief and the whole grieving process and the way grieving is a social uh, becomes a social activity. Um, I think it's really a one of a kind, again, m amazing movie. Didn't seem to connect with audiences like his other movies, but I think is worth looking for. Finally, my number 10, kind of what I would call, I guess, underrated worthwhile movies of the last, uh, the last couple years is, um, you know, uh, a movie I'm not surprised that it wasn't popular. It's um, Godard Mon Amour. Um, I'm not surprised this wasn't a popular movie. So egghead movie buffs um, like myself, most of them are really like Jean-Luc Godard. And this is a movie that kind of spoofs Godard. And I had a lot of people telling me like, oh, how how dare that guy who made a middle brown movie, like the artist, make a movie about great Godard. Um, how dare he spoof Godard. Um, but, you know, I don't know. I think it's a terrific movie. It's It's really interestingly made. Um, Godard is kind of a comic figure in a lot of ways. I still think he's a great artist, but throughout his career, throughout his life, he's put on a number of different roles. He's been a bit of a clown before. He's a, provo a provocateur. Um, he's kind of been put on being this radical. And I think the movie as a whole is really sympathetic to Godard's creative impasse that he found himself in in 1968. Um, having said that, you know, more importantly, the movie is really, uh, again, one of these unique takes on the uh, the idea of a, a personal crisis that's also a political crisis that's also a creative crisis. And we watch as Godard struggles with how he wants to be a filmmaker and how he wants to bring his his politics into his filmmaking um, and then the effects that has on his personal life. And I think it touches on things that a lot of movies that deal with filmmaking really don't talk about, like the idea that 
maybe Godard's girlfriend is partly attracted to him because he was this kind of great movie maker. And once he seems to be losing that touch, you know, the uh, some, some of his appeal starts to go away for her. And, and we actually, it's a very kind of sympathetic take from her point of view that, that you know, it isn't, isn't kind of holding her up and in a, in a criticizing her. It's kind of making a good case for um, Godard's kind of talent and interest as being one of the things that did make him kind of an attractive, interesting person. Uh, so I, I quite like it. I highly recommend it. It does fall into a category of you, you probably, you know, I think part of the problem with why it didn't do so well, you need to kind of know and care enough about Godard to want to watch a movie about him and about his filmmaking. On the other hand, if you're very much kind of protective of Godard, you'll, you might be defensive and think like, oh, this is a, this is, this is a, uh, this isn't respectful. I don't know. So those are the 10 recent movies uh, that I think are worth checking out if you haven't seen them. Um, most of these, like I said, you know, these are sort of well-known um, in some way, but just didn't connect. Um, give them a chance. Uh, I think they're all uh, worth a look for sure. At the very least, um, they're interesting. And I think, uh, I think they're all more than that, though. Anyway, uh, that's all I have for today. Take care.